0: Well, we've had uh, several of these talks here in, in Socrates about um, things like climate change and the effects of technology on jobs, and, and we had one called in Socrates called Work. It was about different um, things to do, and particularly uh, uh, what to do about folks that just can't find work in the crisis. So we've, we've had discussions about these things. We've also had uh, discussions about psychology, and in other words, um, the righteous mind, for example, and what, why people believe irrational things, and so on. So we've gone into a, a lot of different subjects, and this one's going to be about change, and, and and I don't want to overlap too much with all those other discussions, so I don't want to repeat too much of that. I think we all kind of know that ro- robots are taking over, for example, <laughs> artificial <laughs> intelligence. But I wanna, I, uh, and, and we're, climate change, same thing, and uh, these subjects were part of some of these books on, uh, on, on uh, uh, a change that uh, that I've read, and I'm gonna focus on two or three of these books. But there's an article by you know David Hoole. He's the kind of the current. Um, futurist, a, a local person, and, and he writes for the paper, and he's got a lot of good stuff. So I just want to mention one thing. So, I want to mention one one thing to add a little bit to, to our knowledge about artificial intelligence, because he wrote this article I got it here somewhere, called, uh, Will You Have a Job in 2025? And he says that Oxford University forecasts at least forty-seven percent of jobs in America will be replaced by machine learning in the next ten to fifteen years. This should be a topic of this should be the topic of discussion about jobs in our country, not the lame twentieth-century political dialogue currently taking place.
1: And, uh, I, I think they can't get in. Take this one.
2: Phil,
3: there's a chair back here. Yeah, I'm going to move out you can have this one. Would you tell me where I am, please? Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is the um, Plano Circle. Perfect. Okay, good. We've had people as come as and say, I, yes. I, I don't belong to this group. Yes, but yes, you yes, do, so have a I seat.
4: Have seat. I think we yes. order orders all. Mm-hmm. all
5: right. Thank, I would you. Thank you. Oh, would be the back end way. No, you're no, really no, you're chairman sure. more than the chairman of Norway and one. Yes. Yes.
0: Yes. So uh, know somebody else just came in. I don't know if there. He's, uh, oh, there, everybody's there. Everybody's got to see. okay, yep. good. Uh so anyway, um, uh, he's saying that the 20th century calls of political dialogue is going on now. We shouldn't be talking about that. We should be talking about things like what are we going to do when machine uh, learning takes over? Takes over, does take away people's jobs. And, uh, and he gives a list of what he thinks the vulnerable professions are. I thought I just rattled those off. Vulnerable professions. Middle management, commodity salespeople, report writers, jur- journalists, authors, and announcers, accountants and bookkeepers, and doctors. Doctors, okay. Think about that. The least likely of people to get displaced by machine learning is preschool and elementary school teachers, professional athletes, figures, uh, politicians, too bad, <laughs> mm-hmm. <Yeah. laughs> judges, well, I guess we need, the human has to touch in judges too, and mental health professionals, those are the least likely people to get this place. So I just thought I'd, I'd lead this off by giving that update on <clears throat> what we've been discussing about how, uh, in fact, we even had a, a discussion called The Rise of the Robots, where we went into some detail about that kind of thing. Now, the whole idea of change, uh, I read Tom Friedman's book called uh, Thank You for Being Late, which is his latest book. He says it's his last book, maybe. <laughs> and boy, I mean, he just churns out and puts everything down it's in his head, stream of consciousness. He could take a lot of that book and edit it down uh, pretty easily, I think. But anyway, it's a, it's a good book to read. Uh, but I was very curious in in revisiting some of the older books by futurists, so-called, uh, through the year through the years, and and because I wanted to revisit what they said was going to be like now, and then compare it with what it's like now. See how, and in there is, is a lot of material that, that's um, I, I think still relevant. Um, and uh, one of the first books that came out was in 1970 by Alvin Topper called Future Shock. And uh, the future he wrote about, I would say, is right now. And that, that, that was, he was attempting to do that back then. And what he was concerned with was that the big changes that resulted in all this stress and, and disorientation was starting to tax people's ability to cope. And, he, and uh, he says that there's a certain range of change that people can handle, and this is called the adaptive range, and if the amount of change is, is below this level, the result is boredom, and people seeking more excitement in life, you can picture that. And if the level of change is above the adaptive range, man's coping mechanism breaks down, and the result is destruction and irrationality. And this is what Toppler says will happen, the society does not uh, develop methods to deal with the uh, change. So uh, again, in, in 1970, Toffler explained how and why people select the lifestyles that they select. Picking a lifestyle makes the individual a member of a subculture, get that, and cuts down on the number of choices and decisions the individual has to make. It avoids the problem of over-selection and over-stimulation. Major decisions occur within the individual changes in his lifestyle and becoming a new set of values to adopt. And, and so, gosh, I couldn't help to think, what if we weren't all you use here? Is this a soap cold or something? I mean, are we, are we getting, are we copping out from having to adjust? You know, and, I don't know. anyway, I just <laughs> just think about it. Uh, and so to. to Elman topper, future shock is a disease, okay, and it's separate from cultural shock, which we can all imagine, because cultural shock is if you go to a foreign country and all your cues are wrong. I mean, you, the normal cues that you get that we just take for granted uh, in our surroundings are, are absent often, and uh, and uh, so unexpected uh, things come at you, and you're stressed. And I know I feel that way if I go to place I don't speak the language and every so on. It's very, very stressful for a while. And, uh, particularly if you're just just you and your wife and not not part of a group. And so uh, it's similar I guess in some ways as far as the anxiety is concerned to, to have all this change. Now <clears throat> He also says that some, some live at a more accelerated pace than others. Some try to break out of this fast pace of so-called rat race, which is what I call it all my life, and, and they want to slow it out. And, but he does say the people in a fast lane are the people in the future, unquote. So I guess that's, that's, um, that, was, that was the way he saw it. And when I read that, in a, in a recent summary, I just read of Toffler's book, uh, I thought of the old book, you remember Type A Behavior in your mm-hmm. heart, where these two uh, medical type people, uh, Meyer Friedman and Ray H. Rosenman wrote that book, and I remember when I read it how impressed by it I was, because I felt like I was in a rat race, and, and uh, so uh, how was to make it through there, and, uh, and so, uh, you know, he kind of characterizes a person that, that has that kind of personality. Uh, you always walk, move, and walk and eat rapidly. Do You uh, get unduly irritated at delay when the car in front of you seems to slow up. When I mean, you have uh, to wait in line or wait to you see it. you get impatient in, in those situations. You have to try to do two things at once. You feel guilty when you relax. I mean, that's those are characteristics of type A. But I, I recall at the time that the type B was was kind of the, the slow, deliberate, crafts person. you know, you call him craftsman, but he means a, a whole class of people who try to do things methodically and get them done right the first time, and, and so on, as being a type B personality. <laughs> And obviously this point was that the type A's would be candidates for heart attacks and so on and uh, other stress-related disorders, and the type B's would not. I, at the time, disagreed with, with all this stuff. I, I, I felt that I knew too many people who ran around at a fast pace that I really didn't think would ever get a heart attack because they were really into what they were doing. They were one with it. I don't think it bothered them like it seemed to bother the people observing them. And I felt the real problem was with type Bs who were forced to live a type A lifestyle to survive. Does that make sense? And I, I brought this theory out to a couple of medical people back then, and they said, you know, I think you're on something there. And that, that, that's, that's, how, that was, that's just my personal evaluation. It's not what the book said. But just I just couldn't help but recall this when I started reviewing Topper's work and about the uh, the fast track and the, and the and the rat race and so on. Um, okay, let's see. There's a page two here somewhere. A, oh.
1: Start, what? What start are to page I want to start thinking. What am I? <laughs> what am I to focus on right now? When you say change, or is it change that is in our lives, or what does this <clears> change <throat> mean?
0: Lifestyles. He's saying that you okay. have to change your lifestyle to to adapt. Okay. So well, well,
6: in uh, uh, what, what, Thomas Friedman's book, he speaks of. Ch- Change uh, being exponent at an exponential rate today. That's the whole point of
0: his book. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 uh, and, and I'm halfway to getting to that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, climate
6: change I, and yeah, te- exactly. technology. And can't that's, keep up with it. It's impossible. It's so fast. That's all part of
0: this book. I'm, I'm starting back back in the seventies, and now I'm going to go to 1982 when. Uh, uh, Naismith wrote his, a guy named, uh, I forget his first name already, John. <laughs> John Naismith wrote a book called Megatrends. Oh, jeez. Careful. Got a little dizzy here. Because I'm a type A. Because I'm a type A. <laughs> uh, Megatrends 10 New Directions for Transforming Our Lives by John Naismith. Now, he was a futurist that succeeded uh, Alvin Toffler and uh, I, got the, I just got this off Amazon for a dollar. You know, I get these old books. And um, so he. Uh, so this is an 82 that he wrote? That's correct. It's an 80, 1982. But I want to spend another five minutes in 1982 before we go to 2017. Uh, he says that the most reliable <coughs> way to anticipate the future is by understanding the present agree, 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 because people can ignore or resist change, and I recall my parents resisting microwaves, air conditioning, that kind of stuff, and current people, you, you, you know yourself, we don't all buy into computers and smartphones and everything, some people resist that, so it seems to be characteristic that some people uh, can, do do ignore or try to ignore change. The um, other thing Nesbitt says is, that, uh, and you're going to find Friedman's going to reinforce some of these things. That's what fascinates me, is that there's continuity here on these ideas, that uh, state and local governments are the most important political entities in America. And he says, despite the conceits of New York and Washington, almost nothing starts there. In fact, he says, most of the social invention in America occurs in just five states. And he calls these the bellwether states. Of California, Florida, Florida. oh wow,
2: that's surprising. Washington,
0: yeah, surprised the heck out of me. <laughs> uh, Colorado and Connecticut. <clears throat> he says, all throat these throat> have a rich mix of people, different ethnic groups and so on, really, and so on. Now, this is 82 now. <laughs> uh, you know, for example, uh, he says that uh, California invented the salad bowl, okay, <laughs> and uh, and that. Uh, but they more seriously, they, they sort of uh, their whole idea of initiating referenda to um, get get laws changed, uh, really, they 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 sort of pioneered that kind of thing and sort of spread. The, the citizen, more citizen initiative. Before that, there were a lot of them going on. And then Florida, because of condominiums and timeshares and sunshine laws, started some trends also. And then uh, Colorado, they started the trend towards managed growth, where the developers were, you know, some breaks were being put on developers, and they started that trend. Just little things about trends, you know. Connecticut. Eliminated some monthly utility charges for poverty-level customers, and the uh, Connecticut Supreme Court uh, passed, uh, declared the whistleblowers should could not be fired, which is a major milestone there. And in Washington, Seattle, uh, outlawed mandatory retirement, which was 65 all the time I was growing up. You had to be retired. So... Um, the, the book by Friedman, um, I would call it a, a very detailed statement of the world as it exists now and suggestions of how to deal with it. And a lot of it has to do with employment and work and how you're going to survive with all this change going on. Survive meaning continued employment. Now, a lot of us are, most of us, I guess, are retired. And you may not but we still think about these things a lot because we're very concerned with with the job market out there even though we're not necessarily still in it because it, it really does uh, it is going to influence how everybody lives how many people can can stay working um, now as, as Richard pointed out, um, Freeman's thesis is that um, everything is accelerating, and the word gets used on every page: accelerate, accelerate, accelerate. Uh, And then words like fastest uh, and the cheapest and and, uh, so on, words like that are used on, on every paragraph. That's what the book is. It's it's a it's a book of superlatives. It, um, it's trying to make the point that, that things are happening faster than we can handle handle it. So he's got these curves, and I I can hold the book up, I guess, but I didn't make any flip charts or anything, but he's got these curves that show change ex, uh, uh, proceeding at a certain rate, and then the, the ability at, at a faster rate than people's ability to adapt. And, I, and uh, he's got some psychological... Justifications for for that, but I, I I you know I just can't get into the whole thing. But but that, but his main thesis is that we we uh, like like Naisbitt and Topper, you, you 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 reach the point where you, you you get overwhelmed, and then you start to get anxious, and then you get even less functional than you were when you started. And that's, that's his concern, and that's what his book is about. Um, he does go into things like the um, making sure we understand, for example, that the refugee crisis is not just from the war torn Middle East countries, but it's also from Africa because of climate change. It has a whole chapter on climate change, which I think we've really covered well in these Discussions before, and so I'm not going to reiterate that chapter. But uh, there is one. Um, he does quote a lot of people that we've already discussed, and and, uh, and so uh, you know his sources are, are the same ones we've we used. So, so a, you know, I, don't, I don't want to, I don't want to re- recapitulate that either. I do want to just take about five more minutes or so to explain uh, what I've observed personally by working for a profit-making company for the last, you know, for 40 years before I retired. And uh, because I was in the high-tech industry, so so right away I was hit with change big time, right when I was in my early 20s and started work. and uh, my father worked with Firestone Tire Rubber Company his entire career, 40 plus years. Started out as a trainee, ended up as Vice President of Purchasing, and he had the same boss for about twenty about 25 years, I'd say. He had the same boss. Uh, they never reorganized the department, stayed the same that whole time. There was all this continuity. They had... Uh, Great pensions, the fine benefit pensions. Um, he had, uh, uh, I don't want to miss anything here. Uh, there, were, there were unwritten rules against pirating. You didn't move from Goodyear to Firestone to Goodrich or anything like that. They were in Akron, Ohio. Uh, because you, you just didn't do it. it, was, it was, no, nobody would hire you away from another company. Oh my God. It was awful. Not private, personally. Uh, they did they did hire on ethnicity grounds and gender grounds and so on. I didn't, I didn't think they were very uh, uh, unequal in that way. Uh, I always thought that beyond the. the the Firestone family, say, for example, they were very wealthy and they were just like robber barons in a way. They were up at the top, they had their big mansions in town and so on. But below that level, everybody, there wasn't a lot of difference. I mean, uh, my bosses, they, they lived not a heck of a lot better than I did. Not a heck of a lot. You know, they were better. They had more, big, little bigger houses. Well. But not a lot bigger houses. You know what I'm saying? There was a lot more compression between the the, the various tiers up and down the hierarchy than than there is now. Uh, That's my my observation. But there was a lot of uh, stability. Uh, My dad didn't have to deal with a lot of change at all. It wasn't a lot different. And he assumed that my life would be the same. And all the advice I got was based on that. Okay. Well, it was not the same. Okay. Uh, I was in high tech from the get go. I, I did product designs that could be manufactured to fulfill whatever function needed to be fulfilled. Had to be done within budget and time constraints. Customers were, uh, in my case, were either the US government, uh, military, or civilian, like, you know, could be the FAA. And, uh, and U.S. or foreign businesses, I did not ever get involved with uh, consumer goods, just to let you know where, what sector I was in. And uh, I, I went to work for RCA right out of school, and I, I went, I um, went at RCA in New Jersey, and, and it was a military type, type thing. And I worked there for six months and then I got my orders to go in the Air Force and they knew I was going to get those orders. And so they said, when well, you get back, when you're done with the Air Force, come back and you'll, you'll have a job. I said, okay, I'll certainly consider that. And I went in the Air Force. Every, every, we, we, everything was done with vacuum tubes when, when I started. I was in the Air Force for two years doing more administrative type stuff. Went back to RCA, there wasn't a vacuum tube in the whole plant, it was all mm-hmm. transistors. So I had to go back to school right then at night and learn circuit design using transistors. And that's how fast things were changing in 1959 to 61, about that time area, time frame. Wow. So, uh, just long story short, it was like that the whole way. I had to constantly retool, go to school, whatever it took. But other things happened besides just the technology. The, the way that companies were organized, the way they thought about loyalty. Um, in fact, uh, once layoffs, once there were more frequent layoffs, when uh, business was bad, they just laid people off. And... And so that meant uh, that, that was a disease of loyalty. Uh, we outsourced more. We, uh, we used to companies used to be vertically integrated, where you did everything under one roof. Now you did hardly anything under that under that roof, except your own specialty. Uh, companies became more uh, far more specialized because of that, and then they hired specialists. So there were. You see ads in <coughs> a paper uh, for a Unix 5.0 programmer wanted. Now, you, now, that sounds like a good job for a temp, but these were for permanent employee, permanent hires to do something that specialized and drove HR nuts because they'd say, well, this guy is, is no good uh, because he has a bad personality or something. You'd say, don't care. He knows you, Unix 5.0. I mean, believe me. It, it was uh, a very fast-changing cha- fast rat race. So, uh, uh, use of temporary help and consultants went way up to, to cover uh, scheduled situations. And I could tell stories to help folks over about all this. The point is that uh, I felt I, I was in an anxious situation many times during that 40 years. And I made five job changes, there were four of which were my own making, and one of which was not. I got laid off once. And when I was laid off, uh, I got a lot of perks because I was in management at the time, and uh, one of them was out-placement, and I went to an outplacement placement place, uh, Fairly near. In fact, I could have lunch with the guys I used to work with, was so close. And, and I go down there, and, and uh, they give me a desk and a phone, and I just start making calls, and that's what I did all day long. I mean, I, I set up meetings with uh, my network, if you will, <laughs> and uh, things like that. That's all I did. Look for a job for seven months, and I got one. I went back to Mauritia, where I worked before. And then, and then I left there after two years. I made a lot of changes, but it was great. Uh, I don't know. Well, that's enough of my personal stuff, too. But I I, I just thought I'd... I'd, it, I'd cha- I, guess, I guess the point to all that is when I read Friedman's book, I thought, where the hell have you been? This is what it's been like for 30 years. <laughs> you know? And he's interviewing these execs, and they're telling them just what I just said, you know, about how things uh, were out there. So, I, it's, all I can say is it's true, it's true. Okay, sorry for the lecture. Uh, so let's let's open up, let's talk about change and uh, usual rules, you know, don't interrupt, you know, you know all that good stuff, right? And, uh,
7: Okay. I guess, uh, as you were talking, I was thinking about it, and certainly there's a great deal of change going on in my life and so on. But I, you know, I taught history, so I tend to think in long terms. And I think the amount of change I've experienced, or that my father experienced, or that I think even my grandchildren experience, is nowhere near like the change that my grandfathers experienced. They both grew up on farms. They grew up without any electricity. They grew up where if you... No, automobiles. They grew up in... You know, they were both born in the 1880s. They grew up in the horse and buggy days. Uh, They both left those farms for for different reasons. Uh, They were both kind of victims of the Great Depression. Uh, One grandfather worked on the railroad. He'd been working there for 10 years. He lost his job. In 1932, because the volume, even though he had 10 years seniority, uh, he was laid off mm. until uh, 1939 for seven years. Mm. And what he did was walk down to the, he was in Carbondale, Illinois, which was a, a, a center. There was a roundhouse there. And he would walk down to the railroad station every day and hope one of the guys called in sick. And they would give my grandfather temporary work. They had a big garden they lived on the edge of town. They had come from Mississippi, which is where, and, and it was an old southern story. The, you know, the land had gone, was a thousand acres from where my great, great grandfather. By the time you got to my grandfather's mother had 640 acres, but she had eight kids. So they each got 80 acres and the land was farmed out. He sold it and took a job on the railroad. And, and that man and all of them, and they moved to town you know, into the modern world, electric lights and indoor plumbing and automobiles. Now that's change. I don't see anything on that order coming up for us. Uh, Or you go back even further when the first settlers came over here. My God, that was change To go from Europe, often from a peasant existence, you're over here fighting Indians and and living in a wilderness—that's of change. So I think we need to kind of keep this in, in in relative terms about what is real change and how do we cope with? It. They coped. I mean, my grandparents mm-hmm. both coped. They managed to send their kids to college. They they worked out a, a a life. You know, they were not wealthy people by any means, but but they lived pretty well and lived to be fairly old. Uh,
1: Real change today and short term change is when your husband's computer doesn't work and he has to change and adjust to no computer. That's, you know, seriously, it might go on a day because the Wi Fi is broken. That's (laughs) change.
4: That's true.
1: (laughs) And that could be big change. Someday on a a larger level, you know, when they talk about everything is computers, if something happens, like I was not living here when the blackout happened on the East Coast, that was oh, that's got to be well, it's like 50 years ago, but literally everything blacked out. At that point, every computer would be gone, everything would be gone, and I think it lasted a few days. That's
7: change. In modern times.
1: Yeah.
7: See, I don't think that compares with moving from the country.
1: No, absolutely not.
7: We we could adjust to that. Computers all went out, yeah, we'd be screwed up for a week, two weeks, some months, and then we'd figure out how to deal with that. And we'd go back to the ways we did just because some of us can still add in our heads (laughs) with a piece of paper and (laughs) so on. (laughs) Uh, uh, it would be chaos if all this electric mm-hmm. stuff mm-hmm. stopped working for a while, but I don't think it would be uh, catastrophic in the way that many people seem to mm-hmm. to think
8: I, I think what yeah, what I take from this is that people have prepared like, you know, what do you, you tell your kids what are you going to do, and you prepare them to be a certain thing, and they train with, with different levels of education to do that, and then within no time They can't do that and they have to go back to ground zero and the people feel very cheated. The coal miners, when their mines are closed, they feel cheated because that was their future. And I'm not sure that's where, and I think that kind of ethic is driving our entire country because people don't feel they should have to change. Like I trained to be a fireman, there's no jobs for me. I trained to, to be an engineer, there's no jobs for me. And what do you do there? I think the change issue is whether how we as a society start to develop mechanisms
9: to change our society, to put the systems in place to go for something else. I mean, we watched the Rust Belt
8: program on um, group Gold Trek the other night, which was interesting, instead of trekking through the Africa or New Zealand or someplace, they were trekking through these Rust Belt cities. And it, it seemed like the whole point of that program was not what it should be, what what they can be. And I think uh, the, the kind of philosophy that our whole government needs now is what can we be? We have to change what can we be. And I brought my, my favorite book, my current book, The Smartest Places on Earth, uh, which uh, talks about how communities can get together and think of ways to re-vision Co- cooperatively and collaboratively, their cities, and they're succeeding. And we, but you have to deal with the change. I,
10: I was thinking one of my concerns about the changes, and I, I agree with what you have all said, and particularly what you're saying about the uh, the early changes. But one of my concerns is that that I I fear a change in, I don't even know what you'd call it, of levels of society as I watch the young kids and we think that they're all connected technologically but you've got a whole group of kids who are great at playing games and answering phone calls and texting and then there's this other group that is just using computers to create and do the incredible things that are going to change our society. And some of those ones on the bottom level are not going to have the means, the ability, or the access to reach that other level. And I, I fear this gap. It's not like when you couldn't get a job somewhere and you went out and you planted your garden and you lived off something like that. When we get to the point with this, it's almost like the the type of change, the nature of the change is becoming so technical that the gap is going to widen very quickly between the cans and the can'ts. And you're seeing it in the school systems, people are worrying about it, with the kids that are not keeping up with it. It's not a few kids. It's going to be generations of kids who cannot meet this criteria that's going before them. And that concerns me.
11: There's a lot of a lot of ways to kind of come at this. Um, you stimulated a thought of me is that there's a certain amount of survival of the fittest, a Darwinist thing in it, about being able to survive change. And certain people will... Really and certainly be able to do it, and others are going to fall by the wayside. And some dire things will happen to them. Uh, going, going back to the, what, what Brad had to say, I think that a lot of it has to do with whether or not though there are some people that make a decision to change. My father was an immigrant. They, his family made a decision to change to come over here because there was hope involved. There are other people who lose their job who are not prepared, and that change comes as a shock, and they don't know what to do about it. And the ability to change, I think, is directly proportional or inversely proportional to fear. Some people can't change because they're afraid of the unknown. They don't know what's coming. I mean, I I know of instances where, uh, I used to work in prison, I know of instances where people have been given parole and, and got in trouble purposely. Because they didn't want to go out. They didn't want to leave the institution. They knew what they had, but they were afraid of what's going be, what was coming and didn't really want to change. They didn't know if they could change and they could adapt. <clears throat> and fear is an, incred- an incredible force mm-hmm. that determines whether or not. I mean, there are some women who have been abused for 10 years who won't change, keep going back to the same guy that abuses them. Because they're afraid of change, they're afraid of something. I saw I saw that a lot. Um, so I don't know, there's a lot of lot of different levels of, of, of this change. The societal changes, individual change and, and, and uh, a lot a lot of this is very deterministic.
5: <laughs> when we think of the incredible amount of uh, change that occurred uh, at the beginning and during the early part of World War II, all kinds of people that worked on farms or were out of work throughout the 30s, suddenly were doing fairly simple jobs in aircraft plants and armament plants and so on. They could learn a job in a matter of weeks and earn a good living and make a, a contribution to the war effort. We adjusted that rather quickly. Of course, you couldn't buy anything because there were no consumer goods available throughout the war. You could get it on the black market, but that was it. What I think is happening now is that the world of that kind of work is being destroyed by robots and, and automation of one kind or another And there are no jobs for ordinary people, I think you mentioned that. And there won't be, except McDonald's and things of that nature. So from my point of view, the big problem with change is that the workplace has suddenly become, except for routine jobs that are low-paying, the world of work has become inaccessible to an enormous number of our fellow Americans. And to me, nobody, Democrats, Republicans, liberals, Conservatives, nobody is dealing with the fact that in a relatively short time, all the consumer goods that we're going to need in our society are going to be produced by an ever smaller number of workers.
1: Somebody
2: has to build the robots. That's the only thing. Yeah, was <laughs> so that's the not Somebody to has to build out. them and build the robots, robots gonna
3: be ro- other <laughs> robots gonna be building robots? Yeah. That's a very good possibility. That they're moving quicker and quicker to to um, robotic um, intelligence where it can it can pick up its own mistakes and correct for it. Um, probably another twenty years away, so that will affect many of us. Um, well but that that type of, of intelligence and that type of flexibility um, is spread throughout the whole workforce, not just the you know the, the uh, lower ones, the doctors. It used to be that you you would um, have an X-ray read by a, a uh, radiologist in, in India because they were inexpensive, and you had the flexibility to to uh, send that material. Now they have machines here in the United States that read it with no errors whatsoever. Um, there goes a, a a nice paying job down down the tube, and and who who knew? I mean, after all, it's he you worked your hard. He you went for all the heart out. went for all that work to become one of those. Um, and somebody mentioned mental health is, is one of the last uh, bastions. Um, they now have the they, they have the ability. You know, it's a prototype, but they're moving so quickly on it to basically have an interaction with a physician and or a a psychologist a psychiatrist. And they will do just as good as picking up uh, from your your um, descriptions of the of, of what done. they are not going to sit there and work you through your well they would probably work you through your, your trauma, traumatic traumatic uh, early childhood uh, and and they may even write you out a prescription for a while but my my point is that everything and anything that had to do that has to do with intelligence um, is is fair game for where where it's going but the only thing that's left I remember reading is <laughs> Is the things that that that, that the uh, uh, robotic people don't want to do, which is basically cleaning toilets and and doing things like that. So you know, it's kind of depressing to think one of our last batches of work is going to be toilet cleaning. You know. Mm-hmm.
8: The, uh, you
3: know, oh, little, there's automatic you know, toilet, toilet cleaners now. I, I I was hoping you wouldn't tell me that. <laughs> 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 as, I, as I'm saying it, I'm saying to myself. Wait a minute, they More got what's... stuff that they put in there. They warm the seats for you. They <laughs> see you coming. The light goes on when you walk towards it. You know, God knows what the next step they're going to do. oh, they have day, so I guess they do everything for you. You know, so, oh. all you guys do is get yourself there, yeah. mm-hmm. and you probably do that on, a, on some kind of robotic. Uh, mm-hmm. um, the treadmill. Moving. We'll yeah, barb's the next. Time.
12: Richard mentioned individual change, and I was thinking, this is a lot, much a large part of all of our lives. My husband's father believed that washing dishes was one of the men's jobs in the house, so he always washed the dishes. As a, pro, as a result, my husband always washed the dishes, and would not change, and use a dishwasher. As a result, the dishwasher in our house sat unused for 20 years (laughs) and is now useless because it's all dried out.
9: So you can
12: resist change and suffer for it in a way. But the personal change, the three major personal changes, birth, marriages, deaths, these are radical changes that happen in every life. And each one leads you on a path that's totally new and that you really didn't expect. As most of you know, my husband died in January, and I'm amazed at the changes that have happened to me as a result that I never anticipated. It's Things things happen without your knowing in the personal life, life changes. I mean, change of house, change of jobs, all those things lead you in different directions yeah. that no, really that would, come as a surprise. You got
0: yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm working dishwasher. Uh-huh. paper plates. <laughs> Let's see. I think you're, you're actually... Uh, um,
2: yeah, it made me think about a lot of things. Um, we've gone f- from manufacturing to service-oriented. I think this has been a huge change all the time with jobs. Um, Think about Florida in particular, because of all the senior citizens. Service jobs are huge in the tourist <coughs> industry. Those aren't going to be replaced. Those are personal um, relationships that people have with their doctor, with um, caregivers. Our um, medicine, as I discussed late, or, you know, several months ago, was that almost twenty percent of our. National um, spending is, is on health, and there was a very good discussion on Charlie Rose this week with an Indian doctor dealing with um, artificial uh, intelligence. He'd written a book, and I, don't ask me the name of it, but he's got a book out now about this. So there's a lot of things coming. There, look at our society. We absorb women. When I, when I graduated from college, initially, none of us were thinking of, of holding down a job. Most, all, of my, all my friends were college-educated women. We were all having babies. And the, at about 10 years out, after most of us got married, soon after school, Things started to change. The women's movement came in, and we have absorbed a huge number of, of people. Think about it. The, um, my mother's generation, the women that worked were usually had to. Their husbands had died. Usually there was one person working. That's a gigantic change in our society. I think we'll get through these other things that seem like big deals,
0: Mm-hmm. Sure, right about the about that woman's lib. That whole movement yeah. was right, very disruptive. I, I, I remember. A lot of oh yeah, on. it's
2: still there. Unintended circumstance that could be a whole nother,
0: <laughs> <laughs> other That's
10: other right. thing because
2: I'm you know I've been supporting the women's movement, but it's not it's not all good.
13: Yeah. yeah. I worked for the greatest change resistor. In, in every, <laughs> and I think the, the yeah, Catholic Church organized religion <laughs> was right up front with resistance. Yeah. That, that change meant uh, you're on the fast track down. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was very conflicting um, because I could appreciate what, uh, what advances, what potential there was in empowering people <clears throat> into embracing their own spirituality. And the church is saying, no, 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 they, they needed those shoulds and uh, the, the box. Yeah. And uh, made quite an angry woman of me for a while <laughs> uh, that I, I survived. It probably empowered me to uh, integrate more uh, personal change because I was a change resistant even uh, growing up in my years. Uh, Everything was pretty predictable mm-hmm.
4: for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <coughs> um, I'm going back to being on a personal basis. I While you were speaking through I kept thinking of myself and all the changes that I had made in my life with no choice of mine with my careers. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wasn't like a school teacher mm-hmm. that still taught school, you yeah. know. Uh, When I went into, uh, when I left college, and I didn't graduate, that's a different story, but anyway, uh, when I went to, it started working, Uh, things were changing a lot in the years that I was working. I went into a a men's field, manufacturing, and it was men's sweaters and boys' sweaters, and the machines were going, and I was just starting with index cards with the IBM or whatever it was and, and, and someone just sat me down and taught me how to figure it out and how I should do it and then make the design the numbers that, that can tell you what the item is just by the numbers of whether it's black, blue, long sleeve short sleeve, blue neck I learned that and then that changed. The company went down south. That was the first change. And the financial officer said up keep it a list, and I got a call uh, within a few weeks after i the closed and I went into a uh, men's hat company and uh, with the men's hat company was champ hats, which was very big every department store had a department with the wet men's that, you know hats on it and instead of doing that, the financial the, the the financial officer that brought me there. Uh, said Sylvia I don't want you working on this he said I'm going to give you you're going to go to uh, the government and we we import a lot of things so I want you to start studying what that is so when the men's Rex Reed hats and things came in and, and the imports were the braided little short hat with the metal little thing here is all imports we had to get decisions on at the prices of imports and and and, and what it, what it would run and whether it compete with American things and How much our import costs would be, and things like that that I got involved with. And you end up having friendships with people in the government. You go in there and you say hi. And that was a different change for me. And then Champ Hats slowly went, uh, offices went to New York, from Philadelphia, the Empire State Building. That went south. That also went south. And then I went to men's socks. I couldn't go any (laughs) lower. <laughs> that said, hey, you got a good, you know retail, you know uh, merchandise field, and I went to Somerset Knitting Mills, and they they did all the socks with different uh, known brands, like Men's Bronzini Store. They would have the ac- acorn, uh, the uh, unicorn, you know, the guy that uh, the horse, that did. and I ended up doing all their. Uh, uh, control that was different. I went back to the uh, bookkeeping and, <clears throat> and controlling of the uh, merchandise with the shipping. Uh, but the changes, I didn't realize that I ended up part of my life is being comfortable with the changes, mm-hmm. and with that comfort, I and my cousin ended up being. Uh, and that company was moving also down south. And the president said, I want our offices to move to to the west end of uh, Philadelphia, and I want you to come to the offices there. And I said, I can't go. I said, You're, you were there with all the, you know, the important expression, the lost people with with uh, different lifestyle. I said, and I know I would not be comfortable moving. I didn't want to move. That was something that you have to make a decision. You have to know who you are and what is it. And I said to uh, the president, I said, Sarah, I said, you have, you can come into office 10 a.m. in the morning. I have to be there at 9 a.m. I have to go from the other side of the city all the way through, past Schuylkill River, past into this, you know, the main main line. I said, by the time I have to get there, I'm exhausted, and I'm not going to fit in, and my mother won't know anybody there, because I was living with mom, and she was a widow. And so I had to make a decision, but I knew I was making the right decision instead of taking that job. I said, look at me. I said, I have wings on the years that Dead was thought with rings and lights. I won't fit in. And from that, my cousin was finishing interning, and she said, I'm joining surgical specialties. She said, they need you. They're not any good with their office manager. I said, I hate medicine, I'm afraid of blood, and I don't want to work in medicine. <clears throat> but they talked me into it, and I adopted, and I loved it, and I loved, you know, the thing. But I found that not to be afraid, and I'm going to cut it short by saying right now, I ended up in Venice, normally with my friends and background, Venice is not the place. It's the usual place for me. I'm the unique one here. Look at you all. And I will tell you, I joined, I, I joined coming, I'm not a member of the church, but I am a friend of the church my second year, and I have made another new change, and I have learned that not to be afraid to try something, and if I'm feeling comfortable, this is a different situation. People are saying to me, "Are they welcoming me and just being hello and I'm never going to socialize? or are they going to, am I going to fit in? And right now I've met some very nice people and I met a very few pe- you a know, few people that I am starting to socialize with. And I think that it, if you <coughs> have the kind of personality, it's healthy. It is healthy because I realize you grow in different ways. All right. I gave up a lot of seasonings and food, and we can't uh, find it. And yeah, no,
0: but uh, well, let's see. Uh, okay, she hasn't spoken yet. I so I but
2: I'm curious because I th- I think that they're proven that our DNA is actually what's determining so much about our personality. More than, it's more, it's more than the. Nurture, or are you born with it? It, the, our DNA is telling us yes. so much more. But were you raised not to be fearful? And, and were most of the people who were raised great to answer not that. to be? Fearful?
4: I think there's some people that if they just had a set life in their household and they grew up, they may have it in them, but they never experienced much of it. But I was raised literally in a restaurant. Uh, my parents had a restaurant, and we lived upstairs in, the, in North Philadelphia. And the stove was not connected there because the restaurant was open for, for um, sandwiches. There were three clubs and bars in the neighborhood. So at, at 9 o'clock, they switched to sandwiches, and people would come because bars used to have just pretzels and things. And I was, waitresses didn't show up. I was 13, 14. I waited on customers. And so I was used to talking to people, and it's funny. And now don't you ever make a remark either in Richard or? I didn't say anything. (laughs) Dad, Dad never said to me, "Shut up." He'd say to me, "Why are you saying that?" Or he'd ask, you know, the the reason or a thing. And the one thing that you're right. My parent. I'm an only child, and my parents allowed me to be me, and they were immigrants. My father, I realized, not until now, in my 70s, 80 now, my father didn't go to church once, or to synagogue once. Not once. And I never knew, realized why. And my mother went to church, see, I'm here from you. And I finally realized that what my father went through, he gave up on God when he came here, and families were lost, but he never laid it on me, and I never knew it until I sat back and thought about it, as I came to this type of place, and I start thinking of, of the things. That was the, the thing, and when someone was not good in the restaurant, and they heard, insulted me, it, and I answered them back, and my mother said, <coughs> my class said, that's okay, you're right.
11: They
4: had no right to say that. Mm-hmm. So that's how it works, I. Yeah, it works well, is well, I'll try.
11: Reason. I'll try to keep it keep it short, sure, because a lot of people want to. Vote. Yeah, right. so, Something to Pick up on Bill said. Bill, uh, there are there are algorithms in mental health that can do away with a psychotherapist, and picking up on Bill Wolfers' point uh, about jobs and everything. we, we are. At, I think we're at a critical point as a country because there was a time where you could throw a stone at a building, walk in and get a job. You can't do that anymore. And that people are really afraid of change that's coming. The jobs have gone overseas, automation is taking over. And so much of our identity as a person is connected with what we do. If you ask a person, who are you, they'll tell you what they do. I'm an engineer, I'm a social worker, I'm a programmer, whatever it is. When you take that weight from a person, their sense of self-worth... <laughs> Chaos starts to set in, okay, and and I and I really don't want to get into a talk about mm. politics, but Donald Trump's mm. uh, his his attraction was that I'm going to turn back the clock to yeah. a time when we were great, when you could get a job, when coal miners could have a job, when there weren't regulations and things were the way they used to be, <clears> some magical <throat> time in the past, and that if those promises aren't kept. You have a good chance of chaos ensuing. People turn to demagogues. They're they're very vulnerable to somebody who makes a promise to them that I'm going to be the one that answers it for you. Look at Putin and Russia. I'm going to turn us back to the time of our greatness. And if those promises don't materialize, they
6: won't. then
11: what comes next? What type of chaos do our institutions hold? And I'll shut up. This man who
1: is new has had his <laughs> hand up. Oh, you. <laughs>
14: Go for it. peace. <laughs> <laughs> well, Richard has pretty much said what was on my mind. I think that um, I think that fear is a, is a great motivator among people and that fear is stalking the land and is the reason that we are in the political situation that we are in and that people are fearful of um, tomorrow. They don't know what tomorrow is going to bring, but they sense that it's up beyond their control. And they're worried, and they're turning to baser instincts, for example, anti-immigration, here, here. Good. and um, anti-foreigners, yep. and there's mm-hmm. the the bad man or the boogeyman that's out there, and it's a very dangerous time. It's happened before in history. And um, I'm very fearful for the direction that our country is headed in and don't know what to do about it. I find myself in a minority <coughs> And, um, and and f- and fearful for the future. Thank you. Thanks, Peter. Good. Okay, okay. let's see. Uh, I'll Can you explain that
1: more before we go to another?
2: You said you're
14: fearful.
5: Why am I fearful? Of, of, I'm
14: you know, fearful you know, of, of dogs yeah. taking <coughs> control. I'm fearful of People capitalizing on the, the uncertainty that is out there. I'm fearful of those things. Okay. okay. I'll be sure that.
1: My daughter's 41. She just visited me this weekend. One of her largest concerns is population. And that the population growth, not just in the United States, but worldwide. And she's thinking, what's going to be when I'm 70? when she's my age. Is there going to be enough food? Is there going to be enough this? Is there going to be enough that? She's seriously worried about the population not being able to uh, take care of itself.
6: Um, What the last two men spoke about reminds me uh, that everything is not changing. On a certain level, things are not changing. For example, uh, I'm in the middle of an extraordinary book. I'm sure you all know, remember Sinclair Lewis, uh, our era in the thirties and forties. And I, as a kid, I read all of his books. But this book I never heard of. It's called uh, "It Can't Happen Here." It is the most incredible book I've read in a long time. You must all read it. It takes place. It was written in 19, and published in 1935. It takes place, Roosevelt is running for president against someone who would remind all of you of someone else, and I won't mention (laughs) his name. Uh, But this guy beats Roosevelt, and he's a real demagogue. And what happens to this country is mind-boggling. And when you say you're... He's a fascist. He is a fascist, Mm -hmm. yes. But uh, charming, great speaker. And he appeals to the common man. He starts uh, something called... Uh, oh, he enlists all these young kids uh, to work like uh, brown shirts in the Nazi era and the Muslims era. And little by little, he's, uh, he takes over the country. And uh, the, what St. Peter Lewis is trying to say the main character is a publisher up in in Vermont. He has a, a very liberal paper. I've reached a point where he's been jailed. But uh, he says, you know, it's not uh, this person's fault or that person's. It's our fault because we were too docile. We just accepted it. it happened so gradually uh, that we are to blame. But anyway, I recommend it. It's, it's, it's a wonderful, book. fascinating book. Also, I want to apologize for wearing long pants today. I know it's all men. Oh. The main reason I didn't wear them, my legs are so beautiful. <laughs> I didn't want to put the rest of you guys in shape. Thank, Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Tom, we to for somebody. May I text you a while? to hear from you? Hello, everyone. My name's
9: Tom. And I'm Tom. You just listening to everybody... Uh, it sounds like everybody's got their own uh, examples of, you know, how their lives have changed. And so I don't think there's any, uh, there's no doubt in my mind that, you know, we've all had to change in our lives and the people we know and ourselves. Uh, it changes just a, uh, you know, an element that it's, it's, it's you know, life is change. It's change is life. So we've all, we've all had to encounter it. Getting back to the book, uh, you know, I think Thomas Friedman's point is—he's his his his, uh, his thesis, his philosophy. Not to not to repeat, but uh, you know, there are there are things, and, and in his mind, it's you know globalization and it's uh, the technology um, and and the environment well, the environment, environment, globalization, technology, that are the big the biggest drivers on. Um, speeding up the change it was the
6: third thing i don't remember yeah it
9: well was. uh environment globalization and technology we're, oh, we're, the, we're three yeah Any, oh, oh, anyhow anyhow so um, i guess my point is because we're all, we're all we've all had to, we're, we've all grown up you know dealing with change in our lives and um uh, you know friedman points out that in his opinion it's speeding up and he has some ideas on how to uh and how to deal with it, but it seems to me that uh, you know the, the the key is so. How do we you know what's the what's the what's the better way? What's what's some some insights on on how to on how we sh- on how individually and maybe collectively we need to behave as we recognize the need for our need for change. Okay, so we talked about uh, careers and skill sets. So how do we anticipate what sort of things we have to learn in order to um kind of get out in front of the, um, the forces that that are that are happening and what sort of things uh you know can can our society our communities our cultural culture do to help us um navigate the change because change is very threatening and the more if we've got some security and some insight into into doing that, we're more likely to be successful.
0: Well, let me interject a little bit because it's, it's right picking up on, on your question. Friedman's last two chapters are on what to do, and and his whole approach, and similar to bayes and others uh, the, the, the similar, is it, it's a bottom-up world and not a top-down world. You don't get, Washington doesn't uh, isn't really the driver. The driver is the grassroots and, and bottom-up, and he spends a long, lengthy many pages talking about his hometown of St. Louis Park, Minnesota, which is a near-end suburb of Minneapolis, and, 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 he, and how they were uh, very discriminatory against Jews when he was a kid, and now that's, they've somehow solved that problem. But the things he talks about as the solutions have to do with collaboration between universities and industry, for example, more of that, um, and, and just teamwork all, all around where the uh, city council knows what, knows, can, can anticipate uh, what needs are and, and, and solve them, and, and uh, the, the council members know what's going on in the schools as much as the, as the school board does. and. <laughs> Uh, it's just he, he just sees this great commingling of of different low-level agencies as as being the way to, to really boost things up. And uh, that seems to be his his main thesis. Now now Naisbitt says the same thing in 1982, that it's bottom up and not top-down. In fact, david says fads are top-down and progress is, is bottom up. And uh, I, I just find that, so, so anyway, that's 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 his solution. I guess I've got a line. Right over here. And where was Brad? If yeah. he was bread. Yeah. Oh, okay. I'm track uh, Let's go with Brad.
7: Go ahead. Well, think about bad. Florida first of all. And I was surprised when you read that list, Florida, and then I thought, well, my God, think about us. <laughs> this kind of community didn't exist. <laughs> You know, until relatively recently. An intentional community where we moved here because we like these various things that are here. And we've all had good enough jobs so that we can choose where we retire. But moving, I think, has historically been the way people dealt with change. It's certainly what my grandparents did. It's what my father did. It's what I did. And it's what my grandchildren, who, by the way, are not fearful at all. They're all extremely optimistic about uh, they're not so optimistic about society, but they're optimistic about themselves and their own chances for having a good life. Which which I kind of find kind of interesting. Yeah. But I think I, I think you hit on to me what is the biggest problem and that is it's not I mean there's still jobs out here, you know, a lot of jobs. Yeah. I've seen four or five restaurants in the last couple of days. Help wanted. Problem is they probably if you go in there, it's gonna be part time. And you're going to have to have three of those jobs. So it's not survival. We're going to be able to survive. Are we going to be able to have a middle class lifestyle? Now, my grandchildren all seem to feel they're going to have it, mostly because they're all in college except one, and he's doing okay. I mean, he's, I don't go into him, but he he's a, hes out of college and knocking around, you know, tries this job for a while, he doesn't like that, so he. Quits it and gets, it. but he's always able to get fairly decent job because he's a bright kid, he's affable, and so on. He just hasn't quite found his uh, his direction. But I'm afraid there are a lot of people who are stuck in places, and I don't know what. It, why is it some people move and other people don't?
2: I've asked that question. What, we were talking about West
7: Virginia. Why don't people move out of West Virginia? <laughs> well, it's, it's fear to some extent. I, did. I think I to some I mean, extent there are certain up. kinds of people. All their people are there. They aren't the kind of people that move. They fear difference. Uh, and, and I don't know what to do about that exactly. What do you do about Detroit? And it, and particularly about the black ghettos. I worry about this more than... the Hispanic people seem to be adjusting and moving up. But it seems... And obviously some black people move up but it seems to me there's this this core group in the towns and cities now where life is steadily going downhill, and not and we're not, not much is happening about it, except all us white people are moving out to no, the suburbs or down the floor. <laughs> I'm going to try
0: to do a radar scan. I would do yeah, yeah, it expect, for you, because we're, you know,
7: we're not getting
0: the full suspension.
13: full coverage. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, I'm going to try to cap a couple things. I... Uh, what the last things I heard you say connected for me to the barber book on fusion coalitions and how the grassroots can be involved and and get positive uh, forward movement and I, I believe there's that possibility with social media and there are opportunities anyway if we jump on to it. I connect with the fear stuff. Um, I battle it constantly on so, on my social media is. Pref- uh, my preference is Facebook, and I'm constantly uh, going after the friends and family. I'm probably going to be yep. unfriended for for standing up against bashing uh, different people and, and creating and na- enabling all the divisiveness that constantly breaks down and builds up the fear. And so mine are getting my direct candor to stop that stuff and find another way to direct your comment. Make it, somehow, something that's constructive, that can be helpful for uh, the readership. Because I'm an active reader, I want them to respect that.
6: Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, to, to,
13: to
12: repeat what Anne has said about fear, and Peter, fear is what motivates an awful lot of people. Yes, and demagogues work on the fear invariably. They, first of all, make people, the church of course has done it for centuries, giving them the worst fear there is, torture for all eternity. What's what's less sadistic than that? But demagogues present also a scapegoat. In Hitler's case Mm -hmm. it was the Jews. Presently we have perhaps the Muslims or we have you know somebody somebody has to be responsible for your fear. Or so they give him a, a, a scapegoat. Mm-hmm. Um we are committing sins all the time according to somebody and therefore we need to be afraid. But those who are not afraid are out of the system. We don't we don't hear all that. Mm-hmm. We don't listen. And so right. I think right. yeah. the majority of people really are afraid of something. Yeah. And they're just waiting there for the demagogue to yeah. come along and direct their fear. Right,
0: make you, so. make, you, make you want to get a gun or something. Yeah. 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 Okay, I'm well, really we'll trying we'll I really to be Democratic. I a while. Yes. For yeah.
5: a while. Hi, I mentioned earlier how at the end of the 30s, uh, when Rosie the Riveter appeared, we suddenly had employment that didn't exist and we did this tremendous thing called Arming for World War II. Before that, one of the New Deal's attempts to solve the economic problem, and it was a very tiny solution because the money involved was so small, was the uh, CCC program and the uh, WPA program. I have a feeling that we're somehow going to have to convince a lot of pe- key people in government that while we're dealing with the changes and the things that we can't do anything about because the changes are happening faster than we can deal with them, we're going to have to pay people for doing nothing. We're already doing that. <laughs> no, we, <aren't. laughs> we are We're not paying people for doing nothing
3: the
0: welfare system is that okay, way?
5: Okay, Bill's
3: talking Okay. Now you've been very patient. Go ahead. Um, and, 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 and you're bringing up something that, that fits into it. And, and that is that we really have to have a, a, a radical thinking about how things are going to happen in the future uh, because there's no way around it. Automation and, and, and robotics and, and, and the the inventions that are going on so fast that we call the technology i mean people worry about coal we'll be longing for oil is worthless because they'll have fuel cells um and so there's all this stuff going on that means more people on the job brad you mentioned something that i, that I thought was, was was important and that is the sense of community that you we've joined a community and we we basically have, have a world of support and Enrichment and, and, and uh, conversation and, and uh, helping each other out, and these are all new people that we've, you know, we've all moved or stumbled into this area, and we've had all these. We've got the United Church of Christ, we've got their own groups, and we've got this, and there's tons of other ones out there. And it's that sense of belonging and, and feeling important to other people that gives us a, a, a sense of worth and a, and a sense of identity. Well. Things are, are changing so fast that the usual mechanism we had, which is basically to work hard, get a good pension, and, and then retire and, and, and do this, is not around. And there are people, and there are countries that are looking at other ways of dealing with this, this phenomenon of lack of meaningful work. And um, Switzerland it; didn't work yet, they didn't get it through, but Norway is doing it But a couple of their, their provinces and, and, and um, Canada has done it with, a, with a, a section. And that is where there's a base pay given uh, to every individual. It's not gonna get you rich, but it's gonna keep you to get your, your health, your food, and, and your, your, your house. Um, and then there's there's education and, and, and leisure type activities. So those of you who have artistic or other types of, of um, uh, motivations can move in that direction those that wanted, um, uh, like they have over in, in Minneapolis, uh, places where you can go and, and start your own little um, shop, doing things that is important to you, um, is, is what is, is changing and giving people an alternative to our usual idea that you end up, you work um, hard, uh, and then you, you end up re, you know, retiring in some, some period of time. Most people aren't even gonna have enough money to do that, unfortunately. So it really is is society working upwards, as, as some people said, that have to change the way we look at work and what, what is what, how how worthwhile work is in in relationship to um, satisfied life. And it's let's say they're, they're doing it, they're, they're trying it in our way. We'll see how it works works out. Wow. Let's see. Okay. Over here, Barbie.
8: Well, I think going taking this to a different dimension, I think we have to do things at the community level to 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 set up working situations for some of these people that are not employable, and I don't think it can be done the way it's always been done. And I'm really impressed with this book because when we grew up, the, the rubber companies were in competition with each other. When we were uh, the adults are high-tech companies. We're in a competition with each other and somehow it, the times are good, it all worked But it's not the same anymore. And, and you, this book is talks about the, how the Rust Belt cities have come back and they've done it by local collaborations and a cooperative thing. They provided leadership, which I think I, I, I worry a lot about leadership here in our local community and wherever but they brought these collaborations together to say, we are going to do something with our community. We don't want this, the rusting out factories. We want to do something to bring the community back. And certain, and the reason I bought it, of course, it talks about ACRA as being one of the key ones, and to turn the rubber manufacturing into a, a world center for polymers, employing more people now than ever happened when the factories were coming. And I think that's important, but he goes through all these different cities that have done this kind of uh, effort, and I haven't heard about this anywhere else. But I do think it takes has a lot of dimensions to make it all happen, and I th- but I think we need to think about that in a lot of places. Sometimes here you get the Gulf Coast Foundation and some of the chambers and things would we'll get together and start some of those efforts of how we can. Redirect our local economy to make jobs for people, and I haven't heard much about it lately, but I think Terry Hansen when she was CEO of Gulf Coast was She would throw a lot of money towards those things But it's it's really kind of important that we have these local collaborations to make it work, and we definitely need leadership One thing was key, they all had
13: one strong leader to make it happen Yeah I wanted to connect it back to uh, something Brad uh, said, too, about youth. uh, I heard a news piece this morning that the city of Chicago is making a condition of high school graduation Mm -hmm. that a kid has acceptance to a community college or a four-year college or um, military or another um, trade school. They have to have that in place. To get their high mm. school diploma, mm. and um, I was—it uh, sounds a little coercive. Yeah. I wasn't sure about how a, a kid at the teenage uh, rebellion ethic, but he's got 86 percent success mm. of uh, high school graduation from up from 34 percent in Chicago.
7: Mm. What
12: it happens you know, if they so can't so. graduate?
7: Yeah. Bro, what do I spent my career in a part of an educational area that didn't exist when I went to college, or barely existed, and that is the community colleges. And the best students I had in the community college were not the kids coming out of high school.
9: Non-traditional. They were
7: traditionally, uh, Older. Older. often women.
9: Yeah, I'm They good. were the
7: very best students, best students who had raised their kids, and now they decided they wanted to be. We had a better nursing program than the university did. I Those women always scored higher, because nurses, there's a way of measuring it, and that is they have to take a, take a state board exam. And our women would do better than the women who are typically girls, right, who are, you know, having dates and all this. The, these women are married. Their three kids are already in school. They're much more serious students than the girls at the university. So that we've got some, and the community colleges are growing I think many people don't realize that there are more people enrolled in community colleges now than there are the traditional four-year colleges and universities. And they're much more adaptable. They're much more flexible. I mean, they're constantly, you don't have to get a degree. Well, just, maybe you just need a course or two, and you can get a job as a machinist or whatever. But it, it takes, I, I guess, yeah, communities are great, but after all, and all these efforts. But how did we get out of the Great Depression? Well, we got out of it a little bit because Franklin D. Roosevelt started some massive federal programs, which did wonderful things. I mean, I collect books that they wrote, the Blue Ridge Parkway, the the great park system, the wonderful buildings they built. But even that didn't get us out. What really got us out was World War II. And that is a national, you know, and could, we still are on a temporary kind of, what would our economy be like if we didn't have that whole government defense sector, I think we'd be in real trouble, right? So we just got to expand that, but think nationally and think in terms of, well, how can we solve the problem of Detroit? How can we solve the problem of Newark? And so we can do it, but it's going to take political will, you know, and it's going to, we're going to have to get away from this old idea of the free market, and we can't, it's got to be done by free enterprise, it ain't going to be done by free enterprise, I'm sorry, those days are over.
8: <laughs> <laughs> I
3: don't know where to start, uh, the, 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 the one thing that struck me when you talk about how how well the nurses did, um, I, I taught to college it for, for a while. Um, it wasn't my cup of tea. So Part time job when I was working.
7: But the one thing I
3: saw was was maturity. Those who those who came in right out of high school, um, they were okay, but they were still kids. Those who were out for a couple of years, they came back. They had a whole different demeanor. I mean, they 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 could laugh and they could have fun, but they were there to learn. They, they, there was a whole different way of of uh, approaching the learning. So I had absolutely no, you know, surprise that that would happen, because I saw it happen in, 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 uh, in some of the other areas. The other thing that you can pick up with, with Roosevelt, I mean, just to correct the history a little bit, not that want to correct you as a historian, but the reason he, his, his, he it was World War Two that, that saved him. He was doing fine, and then they pulled back. They pulled back, uh, and, and that, it and dropped it back down, and then the, the war took it up. Exactly. So if they had kept that going they might have been as successful as, as the war. At least to, to the thought that we need maturity, we need, we need people to learn basic types of, of, of skills and, and, and how to take care of themselves from all the, the ghettos and more affluent areas. And I think it's a, some, and, and we need people to grow up a little bit. And, and a lot of people with a lot of money send their kids out of high school for a year off to, 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 to do things and grow up. Um, having a national service program, is in, in, in my my mind, would be the best thing we could do for for the country. Uh, we would get the the benefits of having uh, um, the people working on the, the you know the, the types of things that were done in the 30s, which were magnificent in terms of not only what they produced, but the skill sets that they they developed in, in these kids who basically had none before you know before that, uh, and that would and that would become a way to then fit into what we said about Chicago. then you go off into various areas that you'd be supported to, 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 in terms of a job or a career, um, or whatever, anyway. That-
1: I've always yes. said you should have, bring back the draft and do what you're talking about. Because yes. At one time, they took people off the street at between right. 17 yeah. and 21. They gave them a focus. Whether they gave them a job or not, sure. they gave them a focus, sure. where a lot of these people have no focus. And uh, it would right. do that, but yeah. they don't have to go to war. They can yeah. go learn something yeah. and, you know, fix the street or something, but... I think that we definitely need mm-hmm. to do something mm-hmm. like that. But I'm wondering if they couldn't do it today because all those are on drugs and they couldn't right.
3: accept them. Well, since I'm over here and you didn't see me, I'll wait again. Oh, doing <laughs> <laughs> my scan. Uh, I'm with you. Okay. okay. the doctor's appointment this afternoon. Thanks. So good
0: luck with <laughs>
3: I uh, okay I, I, somebody else wanted to talk I didn't want to at your, at your risk you tell you okay um, I just wanted I just wanted to respond to a little bit about that the, you know the the, uh, the draft or, or some kind of a draft I mean most other countries have some, something like that set, set in place and, and when I went I, I was out of uh, Dallas high school because I got into a serious accident I didn't end up going to, to college for a couple of years but when I went, I certainly went with the, you know, I would look at some of the guys I was hanging around with and say, these are their silly as hell. And then I had the guys that, that, that um, had come back from Vietnam,
7: and they looked at all of us
3: just like jerks, because, you know, they were only a, a year or two older, but the maturity and the, the series of purpose, you know, most times they almost had a little kill, was so striking. And, and the way they applied themselves, well, the others were out screwing out, screwing around, you know, I had a roommate, and, and he and I, we stayed in, and other people, you know, you could tell. While well, the other ones were all wandering around the streets, you know, and then they come back and they say, oh, pack, we haven't done our homework, you know. So there's a lot to be said of, of, of mm-hmm. um, getting people into a, some other kind of a setting for a while before mm-hmm. so they can mature a little bit. Well,
5: okay, uh, just a quick comment. In the beginning of the New Deal, the Supreme Court voted down FDR's proposals. They said they had various objections, and the Supreme Court at that time was very conservative. FDR tried to pack the Supreme Court by appointing additional judges. People who loved the Constitution were outraged by that, and it never never worked. But guess what? Many of the conservative Supreme Court justices decided to retire, and FDR got a whole new bunch of guys who said the New Deal was just fine. Mm-hmm. Let's see. No, I
0: was
12: just pointing to him, sir.
0: Okay. Uh, well, Barbara, Barbara.
12: well the, the draft idea is a very good one, but we are already spending. 53% of all our tax dollars on the military. Oh, that's going to worse. The, the military could be used for things much more appropriate than going overseas to kill people. Why not put them to work on our infrastructure and on the things that really need, need work? If we do have a draft, it would be a good idea to draft people as a workforce rather than Soldiers. And I think that
1: would... Yeah, I wasn't thinking soldiers. I was thinking more like, now they have city something or other in Boston. Boston And some of the kids go to that, and it's a year, but that's a choice.
11: Yeah.
0: Well, Terry Rich? Well,
11: I, I, I understand the logic of something like a draft or a public service corps, but I guess part of me is against this one-size-fits-all, is if we do this, then it's going to take care of all these things, because people are very different, and they're going to respond. I mean, I've seen people come out of the service, they do very well, and some people turn to drugs. One of the, the largest segment of, I think, the homeless people are people who've been in the service. I, I would much rather see, if we're going to spend the money, I'd much rather see on, on basic things like improving education, on maternal child health. Uh, you know, making sure the kids get food every day so that if they go to school, they're not going to school hungry, and that, you know, help them make choices in school about what is going on in their life. I, you know, I mean, I think there are people who go to the service and they come out better for it, but other people can't make it and they drop out. It's another failure in their life. Uh, giving them an opportunity in public service corps or something like that is good. But these mass programs to expect one thing to come out of it that is somehow going to elevate society is, I, I think, just a fantasy. Uh, oh
3: boy, <laughs> no, no, I, I agree with you, and I, and I certainly didn't mean it's just a one, one-sided um, way of doing it, but it, it's way, and I agree with you that they, that they can come out both ways, in terms of drugs or, or with a sense, sense of maturity. But we already spend uh, a lot of money, in fact, well, less kind of less so these days. But a lot of money in trying to set up an infrastructure to help people get through, um, and it's successful in some places, and it's not successful in others. And a lot of times it has to—it's it's too late um, because by the time somebody's six or seven years old um, and, and they've been in, in, a, in a ghetto type, they, they really don't have any of those kinds of, of skills.
11: What, what do you mean an in infrastructure?
3: The a, a different structure of, of, of a place to get them out of the, out of the their their current life setting, and into something that is, that is uh, a little more structured. It provides not necessarily you know, the the, the thing I can think of is having the experience of being responsible for getting up at a right at, at, a, at a regular time, having responsibility for showing up uh, and doing these things. When you live in a, 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 an, an environment, um, and it's not just the Gales, where, where this has not happened. Uh, I don't know, if, if any of you haven't read uh, Hillbilly Elegy, um, well, it, it's, it is a book to read. It will address a lot of, of the frustrations that we have and why people don't move uh, mm-hmm. because it's, it's, it's family. Even though they that's extend right. from, from Tennessee up to, to Detroit. You know, it's just like a it's, it's just an extended family moving back, you know, back and, and, and forth. So there is that group that is, in many ways, no different in terms of behavior and attitude and ambition than the um, that what you would find in in the Detroit uh, inner cities or any of the other ones.
7: Uh, yeah, I could have written Hillbilly Allergy. I mean, that's my people. You know? <laughs> uh, I don't want anything compulsory. For kids uh, other than maybe compulsory school, but I don't want it to be the draft because I don't think that fit. the CCC, the Civilian Conservation Corps in the Depression, was a voluntary thing, but you could you know, you know, could sign up for it, that's what I want to see just, and I don't think there's any one thing, I, I would like to see a society where we have provisions if people want to go back to the land and raise organic vegetables that will have some government programs to give them a help and buying that land and getting those cooperatives going and that kind of thing. My wife, as a hobby, took up pottery, and she found out, hey, this is a great hobby because you can sell it as much as you can make. You know, I think in, in living in the homogenized world we do of everything being mass produced by machines, what we really want are these individual yeah. things that are made by people and have that are unique that the machines can't do, really, I don't think. Now, maybe they way down there, they can produce every item that's different. But I think it's machines are always going to have a
3: certain go, kind of... Go, go, go look at this thing called E T Y and you see the fantastic uh, creativity of people in our society. Absolutely unbelievable of uh, yeah, going back to, to... I'm sorry, go ahead. Sorry, I've talked
11: four that. times, go ahead. No, go ahead.
4: Uh, while everyone's speaking, what? crossed my mind, and especially in the very poor and minority neighborhoods. I think what really is needed is some type of, to start with the children, is like the the Boy Scouts and the Girl Scouts, where they have the real, they don't have it at home, and they don't have the examples at home, and yet the Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts, if I remember, was fun. But you've learned to get along, and you learn the only thing, I think that, that they need more people volunteering, doing things like that for the next generation to come up. The sad thing is that. is, that is the drugs. And unfortunately, the uh, people that live in the great white neighborhoods don't, care and think so much about what is happening in there and since i was 17 and it started in philadelphia that even the police didn't care about the minority neighborhoods you know they just got a hold of the young white kids that were doing it No, but they did not care about the back streets people and i think that what is going to help our society whether it is a white neighborhood or a minority neighborhood is having these type of things for children not school, but just the outside where they don't have to do a lesson, but they are getting lessons. They don't have to do uh, regimentation, but they do fall in. And this is where the beginning is more
13: important than anywhere else that okay, I can see. We that. also have uh, boys and girls clubs of America, anything that's uh, organized for after school, and that was another piece of this. In new what story. neighborhoods? Inner city, mainly, and the it's reservation. Yeah. And um, they've been fabulously successful. Another area is community-supported agriculture for rural areas, where um, people are wanting to grow uh, crops uh, indigenous to that region to sell uh, in the neighborhoods, and they need they always need help. So it's another area where a lot of volunteer opportunity is generated. I think we're not finished with Richard.
11: Well, I, I was going to comment on what Bill picked up on Hillbillyology. The thing that made him turn around on that was not an organized program. Despite the value of, of that I see, whether it's the service or CCC or whatever it is, what turned him around was the fact that he had somebody who gave a damn about him, that increased his sense yeah. of self-worth, that made him believe that whatever you, you, that you are capable... He had the basic intelligence, but he ended up going to Yale. So... This guy wasn't a schmuck to start out with, and he right. was smart right. enough. Right. But he, he kept saying is that despite the dysfunction in his family, his grandmother stuck by him, and she told him, you can become something. And, and it goes down to, I think you can adapt to change. you can If you feel somehow you can overcome the fear, that if you feel that, that you, you, you are worth saving, that you can handle anything that comes around. And I think that there are so many things today that rob you of your self-worth. Okay, particularly coming out of a bad house where there's dysfunction going on, something putting you down the people in your neighborhood, or a boss telling you that you're lousy or something like that, and you're going to get laid off. Somehow you've got to fall back on something internal that says, I'm worth it. And if you feel that you're worth it, then you can go out and say, I want to shift jobs. I want to go to school. I want to go into service. These are my goals. Without that... I don't think anything else works. It works whether it's an organized program or, mm-hmm. or a small thing.
0: You know, uh, like big brother, big sister. Uh, we, we had a I mean, case yeah. in our in our own congregation here. Bev Morrison took on a, a black uh, kid that was very disadvantaged and really had no no family and was giving him just like you say he had nothing, and she provided that extra yeah. push that got him to graduate, and right. the day he graduated was a big day because that's it was a, wouldn't happen without so.
12: Just one comment. Don't trust the Boy Scouts. The was true. in the Boy Scouts, yeah. and his scout leader was jailed for sexual
13: abuse yeah. of the boys. Oh, yeah. so it has to be looked. It, yeah. it has to be watched. It, All right, there's so a place church go. That's, you could
1: that's place. everywhere. Place
3: Oh, yeah. I, I, I think I saw Richard, Richard said, which, which was, uh, um, I, I'm, I'm having a, a, um, a brain block on the name of it, I, I'm going to call it Newwell. Uh, New it's the community, it's the Sarasota uh, County's um, uh, community center over there, and, and, and right next door to us. On Laurel Road? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, Central. It's Andrew Sinisteri.
8: Yes. Yeah.
3: And and, and and that's a, I've gone over there, and, that, and and we have volunteers from the church there, and that is a, a fascinating example of, of again with the community rising up to meet that with, with a couple with some leadership. Long story short, they they basically brought in a a, a fellow to work, work this program because they they no one was graduating, uh, no male was getting through through high school. It was just like it was just a black. You know, hole over there. And he brought them in, and he, he worked very hard uh, doing it, but he brought in uh, tutors, recruited people in the community to, to come and, and, and work with these kids. And then he got the, the kids, that, the, recruited the kids that come in. And again, there's a self-selection piece there uh, sometimes. And then these kids basically have one, one, one-on-one after school, and it all it was, they already were there for, for doing their homework. And from that, they spent out to they have a summer camp where they, they basically run the whole the whole summer um and since then they've had uh, this is like 18 years now uh no pregnancies which used to be common um all the kids are graduating i can't remember i don't want to draw the perception but a very high well first of all practically everybody uh either graduates from high school or has gone into the service um a i can't I, i'll say a third because it would it, be minor it was significant of them going on to college um, they're so successful that that they have people coming from Sarasota driving their kids down in uh, Newport driving their kids down here to get them into that kind of a, of a, a program because it's been so effective the kids are bonded one one on one with somebody who cares about them and they're getting the reward out of it which is basically successful homework completion and and that. so and there's a lot of those things around I mean sometimes when we get discouraged or I get discouraged um, I mean I, I I just recall those types of examples I have and I also recall that that, that, that our, our uh, technology is moving so fast that God knows what 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 will work for us later on and you talked about all the, the futures I, I don't didn't that, do that much of it but I do recall every once while I read an article about the futures plans on what we are going to be 50 years from now and then so far out of whack to what they thought was going to happen you know and what really happened we just can't predict that so Whenever I get too depressed about how things are going, I say, you, know, we, we'll you know, we'll survive. We'll work it out somehow. Hey, so. Sarah. You
7: know, the nice thing about history is if you go back, you realize there weren't any good old days. Yes.
11: Yeah, you're right. There was a
7: time when 94% of the black population was illiterate. Mm-hmm. When if you had 10 kids, five of them were probably going to die before they were 21 yeah. the good old days weren't so good and even the you know the 50s which we tend to look at oh, that was wonderful you know they steady job blah blah wasn't so great if you were a minority wasn't so great if you were living in West Virginia and the coal mines were shutting down and there really wasn't much in the way of public assistance and so forth. I, I'm much more optimistic, I think, when I think about I where we're Yeah, we're in a hard time right now. We've done, you know, the country has made a terrible mistake, but that's partly because we've got an outmoded political system, and we need to change it so that a minority cannot elect a president. I mean, we can do that. The number of
13: elderly poor in public housing and nursing homes that are illiterate would astound us. Oh, yeah. I don't think we're aware of how many of our... Peers are functionally illiterate. Right. Yeah. We had we, a, for a program
10: to learn about teaching there, and I was—and this is in the city I was born in—that is a good-sized city in Massachusetts. And I was astonished when they said the number of white yep. adult every, every adult uh, people mm-hmm. who were still Illiterate, every nation. Not talking English as a second language. We're yeah. talking as
13: people who, mm-hmm.
5: were basic. And it, the numbers were just.
10: Yeah. Mm-hmm. What city?
5: And think about what city? Quincy, Quincy, Massachusetts,
10: Quincy. Oh, Quincy. city of the presidents. It's right.
5: And yeah. think about 1450 before Gutenberg. Everybody was illiterate. That's right. <laughs> Except the clergy. That's right. right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the scriptographers just yeah, go.
14: <laughs> one of the ways to attack illiteracy is through education. And I spent 40 years as a public school teacher, and one of the things that I would like to see happen in society is for um, there to be smaller class sizes. You talk about. An individual having an impact on a student, very often that individual is the teacher who is standing in front of the classroom, but if that teacher is facing 35 kids for five classes in a row, (coughs) they get worn out very quickly and they're not as effective as they would be as if they were facing (coughs) 20 kids for five classes in a row. And it would be so nice to see more money spent on education but often it's the very first area that gets axed mm-hmm. under somebody's budget
9: mm-hmm.
14: yeah. what did
5: you teach history
13: half of my facebook friends are former students <coughs> i love it it's exciting to reconnect mm-hmm. history
9: oh, yeah mm-hmm.
0: Well, folks, it's a five of three. I think we need to apply now, but we should try to. I, I guess it's up to me to um, make sure that we're covered for the next order. Bill, do you want to uh, say anything about that? Or? We, we, don't have,
3: um, uh, May. we we don't have May. We don't have May. One of the ones we were going to do, which is pretty controversial, um, uh, and it's not the one necessarily the one we're going to do, is uh, the whole issue of abortion and revisiting it, it's going, be, it's going to probably be something on the issue again, and, and try to look at it from the, from the side of both um, <coughs> those who were favored or not favored or, or in between. Um, so that's the possibility, but I I will send it out to, to this group. Uh, I'm always looking for someone who wants to, has a particular area of interest or, or, or a wish to know something and wants to put some time and energy into it. Um, to, to lead to, to, to up a topic in, and and uh, lead the group. I
8: just wanted to say that the day on, on Thursday you would meet the first Wednesday on Thursday we're working on the whole issue of homelessness here and that's well, we're working on the book of evicted
3: that we shifted the book club getting into eternal things to the first Thursday this is, this, is, this is the, the monthly book.
8: Well,
3: no. There's a whole six-week program on homelessness coming up in yeah. the church. Okay. Oh, it's well, that's. I'm glad, I'm glad you mentioned uh, that because I haven't I haven't heard from from uh, um, Jay yet. But normally he would alert me on what's one of the themes going on, and that's that's how So I would say week. I would say I'm going to make a 180 degree turn right now and say that um, I would suggest, unless somebody else wants to do something differently, that we. We uh, deal with, uh, homeless, do homelessness, and using the evicted book for those who wish to... And, book and book. come on Thursday. Uh, well, it's the whole we, church we, thing. We, is not just
8: the book club. It's like, I we understand so that, often. but,
3: but <laughs> we'll, we will end up, like anything else, we'll end up probably uh, on a particular area of that, and, and I'll, I'll kind of coordinate with... with uh, this group is not necessarily the same group that shows up for... You know, for that. I know. So, the book is good. It's, it's good? It changed, yeah. it. Sociologically, it just gets you into a whole different mindset. Yeah. Well, so there's two possible top topics. Um, I'll be sending something out in the you know, next week or two, just <laughs> throwing out these ideas and then looking for feedback, and if I don't have feedback, then I arbitrarily and capriciously point at somebody or myself. <laughs> okay. Well, thank
9: you all for coming. Thank you.
3: Hmm. Thank you. Yep, that's Thanks, Dick. wonderful
9: Thank you
4: very much, Dick.